heard this morning is very, very practical, uh, very helpful and insightful uh, in our day and age. Um, I would like you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12. Uh, Just as you're turning there, just to give a little bit of history uh, on myself, um, I do have five children. My wife uh, was not able to be here dealing with some other issues with a neighbor trying to help an elderly couple and uh, their issues there. She would have wanted to be here also. She could not be able to sit through all the different sessions with health issues and so on. So she has to either choose today or tomorrow. And uh, tomorrow's Lord's Day, so she chooses Lord's Day. Fitting. Uh, We have five children. Uh, My oldest is 31. My youngest is going to be 20 here in another week or so. And, um, and I have 10 living grandchildren and one with the Lord. And so we have, we've gone through some of the, the struggles that each one of you who've got children are going through. We've seen those mixes. I appreciate the word from Marlon. And as a grandparent, what a blessing to hear those things. Romans chapter 12. We're going to jump into the context here a little bit. And um, I'm actually changing the format, for, uh, the, my format a little bit as far as how I'm going to do my message. So bear, bear with me. In light of everything that's been said, I'm making a few adjustments on the fly. Hopefully, they will be understandable to you. When you look at uh, parenting and when you look at our culture, we are an atheistic culture, aren't we? We're becoming more pagan we're postmodern for sure, but we are becoming more pagan all the time. And uh, we, we are individuals who are losing sight of the grandeur of God. And that, that is seeping into the life of the church. And in Romans chapter 12, we see a word in verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren. The word therefore is a key word. And it ties us back to Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36 immediately. But that has tied us back to Romans chapter 1, all the way up to this passage in Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 1, we begin to see very clearly how man is depraved and God has turned individuals over to their sin, delivering them over. And we see that lived out in our culture, don't we? Just read Romans chapter 1, and and you'll go, that is our world right now. And from there, Romans chapter 3, we are reminded of those words, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the depravity of man, the doctrine of the depravity of man is critical for us to understand. That is, we are not partially good. We have a little bit of good in us. Every aspect of our being is critically, eternally affected by the matters of sin. And then we move on and we find ourselves in that very difficult passage, Romans 9. The knots of the doctrine of election. God having mercy upon whom He will have mercy, God hardening those whom He will harden, so that His name, His great name, would be declared 
and his power would be demonstrated and so forth. Romans chapter 9, verse 10. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath, to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. A very difficult passage of Scripture, but one that is certainly there and we must preach. And then you go to 10 and 11 in Romans, and then you find that doxological statement there at the end of Romans 11. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. As I look at parenting, I'm going to make an application from this little survey that I've just quickly given to you. And then I'm going to drive that point home from Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. But as I consider my own life and as I consider what God has taught for me in the years gone by and as I do reading and so forth, I, I think if, if I was to put a point down on, on points, these guys have have, they've each come with their various points. I, I'm going to be honest. I preached for 34 years. This is 34, 35 years of ministry. And uh, this one sermon, I don't have any points. So here, but I, I didn't on my page, but I'm giving you the first point. As a parent, you need, you need, number one, to see your depravity. You need to see the weight of your sin and what Christ has done to deliver you from sin to His glory. Second, you need to have a grand and glorious vision of the God you serve. You have to have that. You have to be moved to the point when you come, like Paul did to Romans chapter 11, verse 33. It's not just uh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. By the way, what's happening with the Nebraska football team? You can't have that. When you understand your sin and your depravity, and when you understand that God has chosen individuals from before the foundation of the world, not because of any goodness that they have done, but it's according to His mercy and His grace and His love, which He, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit determined before times eternal, chose individuals before the foundation of the world, when you get a grip of that, you come to a passage like Romans 11, and you can't help but sing out in doxology. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Think of how deep the wisdom is. You can't plummet the depths of God's wisdom. You can't go higher than God's wisdom. His judgments are unfathomable. His ways are unsearchable. And yes, I understand that there's a lot of questions that come with the sovereignty of God, no doubt. And yet, 
we need to be able to see, rather than focusing on all those questions, we need to be seeing the, the riches that come with that sovereignty. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? I have liked to counsel God. God, you really should do it this way, right? You really should do it that way. You should have done it this way. You've been there. I'm there. I wrestle with that. God, I would just as soon have my life go this way. Oh, that I would embrace a grand and glorious vision of God. And when you see that, you go to Psalm chapter 78. Go with me there. Psalm 78. Notice these words. Listen, O my people. Psalm 78 verse 1. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which have been heard and known. Now notice these words. And our fathers told us, and we will not conceal them from their children, but tell the generation to come, that God is just like every other God on the planet. That, that our God is just like a good football team. That, that our God is, is just humdrum. No, we're going to declare to that generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wondrous works that He has done. He has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should teach to their children that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children that they should put their confidence in God and do not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. There's at least four generations in that text. Very interesting. They had a generational view of declaring the praises, the wonderful works of God, the glories of God. I would say to you, number one, get a glimpse of your depravity. Number two, get a glimpse of the glory of God. And then number three, Romans 12.1. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Goes back a little bit to Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36 of this grand and glorious God. He's a God of mercy. He's a God who has not dealt with us according to our iniquity. If He had, we would all be permanently eternally condemned forever in judgment and condemnation, right? But God in His mercy sent His Son. And Paul, when he says this, makes note of the mercies of God, he, he does so in a way that he calls these readers brethren. It's a very personal plea that he makes to these individuals. And I urge you, it's a very pastoral on the one side, a very pastoral plea, but then it's also a very authoritative plea. On one side, it's grace, pastor, shepherd. I urge you, brethren, 
I urge you, I plead with you. But on the other side, it's an authoritative uh, exhortation. I am telling you this is what needs to happen. By the mercies of God, leaning upon God, heavily leaning upon God as has been mentioned already, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. We often think of that just in a general way in the Christian life, don't we? Here's my life. Well, think of it in a parental way, in a parental grandparent and so on way. God, here I am. I'm, as it's already been mentioned, I'm, I'm a parent, not by chance. It's been said, notice this, sex does not make babies. God makes babies. Does that make sense? You follow that? It's God who's sovereign over the womb. God's sovereignly choosing certain individuals to be born in a certain period of time, in a certain continent, in a certain place, to a certain family, to a certain woman. God is sovereign over every one of those details. And it is for me to acknowledge I have the children, I have the wife, I have the husband, I have the home that I have based on the sovereignty of God. The mercies, the sovereignty of God. I, I, I'm presenting myself to you, Lord. A living, holy sacrifice. Some would say that this is a priestly pleading, if you will. That is, we as individuals who are a holy priesthood, a royal and chosen nation, if you will, offering up this acceptable sacrifice to God. Here I am, Lord, alive and well, continually, every day, moment by moment. Here I am. I am yours. Do with me as you will. Even when I've done laundry all day. Even when I'm doing the dishes And even when I'm cleaning up the glass that's on the floor from the glass that was spilled off of the counter for the third time and uh, and the plates scattered here and there and the dirty this and that, Lord, here I am. This is my acceptable worship before you. You realize that we are worshipers in every aspect of our lives, aren't we? We're either worshiping our own endeavors and idols and pursuits and so forth, or we're offering ourselves, whether I'm eating, whether I'm drinking, I'm doing it all to what? To the glory of God. It's a matter of worship. One of the doctrines that came out of the Reformation that many people do not realize, and that is the doctrine of vocation, this text touches that, this text begins to reveal that a, a little bit, That doctrine of vocation. Most of the time we think coming out of the Reformation, what are they? The five solas, right? For the glory of God alone, grace alone, Christ alone, the scriptures alone, faith alone, right? Are you familiar with those? We think that's what came out. The justification by faith alone and without a doubt that is what came out of the Reformation. But one one other doctrine, key doctrine, was the doctrine of vocation. That is to teach that there's not this hierarchy of pope and priest and bishop, and then there's the peasant down there picking up dead bodies that have died from the plague, and they're nobodies. The doctrine of vocation that Martin Luther brought out onto the table was this. Even the milkmaid, as she's milking, can milk that cow 
for the glory of God as an acceptable form of worship before her God. As she's sitting in the barn all by herself, milking the cow. And so, parents, there is that offering of worship as you're all by yourself in the nitty-gritties of life, offering up before God with a high view of God, with a high view of and understanding my sin, understanding Christ and His redeeming grace, I offer up this sacrifice acceptable to God, which is my spiritual service of worship. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. High view of your sin, deep view of your sin, high view of God, offering yourself as a spiritual sacrifice as a parent. And then number two, or number four, is that where it's at? Number four, because I don't have it on my paper. Number four, do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world. Pew Research, Psychology Today, tell us that there are many reasons why, in our day and age, we are on the decline as it relates to childbirths. Did you know that? Gen Z, millennials, having fewer children. We are at an all-time historical low in the United States for having children. Why is that? It has been proven that as, a, as, as, as cultures become more prosperous, they also have less children. That's a proven fact. It's there. Why? I'd like to give you several reasons why. That I will tell you this, you are breathing this air. I am breathing this air. You are swimming in this water. I am swimming in this water. I feel the pull of the shaping and the molding and the pressures of my culture around me to make me what it wants me to be, as opposed to standing and saying, no, I am a child of the king, and I follow his commands, not the world's dictates. So I say what I say, not in a condemning way in any stretch, in any form, but as a fellow laborer, as a fellow fighter of faith, the good fight of faith. Here's some reasons that are given for why individuals do not have children in our day. They have no desire. It's a no-brainer, no desire. Why? Because they do not want to commit individuals in our day becoming more and more bent on not committing the 20 plus years of time it takes to rear a child. For all of you who have older children, you understand that full well. It takes a long time to rear a child, doesn't it? They don't want to give that. So, i.e., what's at stake in the decision to not have a child is my time. Hang on to that. My time. Number two, another reason is my career. If I have my career and I'm pursuing a career and then I have a child... I'm going to have my attention spans divided. 
I won't be able to have a fully focused attention on my career. That's number two. Remember that, my time and my career. Number three, and you're going to start seeing these become more illogical the further we go down the list. Environmental concerns. Do you realize children create pollution? They create waste. What mother doesn't know that full well? How many times have I changed that diaper and and washed those dirty underwear of that child? They create waste. And yet, that's on the humorous side, on the sobering side, is we have individuals who actually are looking at the carbon imprint that children make upon our environment and say, you know, I don't think we want to have children because of the imprint that they're making. Mindless of, I'm making a pretty significant carbon imprint right here as I'm walking on this planet as this person not wanting to have a child. What about the state of the world? How many of you of parents have ever asked the questions, the older ones particularly, maybe the youngers, I don't know, I did. My wife and I sat down one day many, many years ago and we said, do we want to have children? The world is a very unsafe place. That's the re- another reason. It's an unsafe place. Why would I want to bring children into this unsafe place? world. Of course it's an unsafe world. We are killing babies by the thousands every day, aren't we? In the United States alone, something what, four to five thousand children are killed every day? Unborn babies are killed every day? We are the enemy of this child. It's an unsafe place. What about, what about the expense Uh, statistics tell us, and I don't understand where they get this, but it costs $250,000 to raise a child. Do you realize I could be a millionaire by my five children if I had all of that money? $250,000. That's a reason why we don't have children. My time, my attention, the environmental concerns of the day, the safety issues of our day, my money, and what about the health risks? What about the health risks? You ladies who are mothers, you know this all full well. You've asked yourself the question, in a culture that is saturated by body image, you see it, right? Buy this hair shampoo and it'll make your hair this way and that way. Buy this and it'll trim up this part and and, and, and make this other part of my body look a little different and a little more attractive and so forth. Body shape, body image, it's all over. And you realize as a mom, when you have one, two, three, whatever, it changes you, doesn't it? And men, you're not off the hook because you set a high demand of what you want your wife to look like even when she's bearing children, we feel the pressure of the culture, whether we're man or woman, husband, wife, we feel the pressure of the culture bearing down upon us, trying to conform us of what women you need to look like and men what's attractive to you. We feel that, don't you? What about travel? Adventure is out there. Adventure, adventure awaits. It's there. 
You need to, to be able to travel and to see the country. How many of you saw just on Fox News the other day of an individual who was a believing woman, calls in to, and, and obviously she's not understanding issues, but she was grappling with what to do in this culture that's saturated by, by it's a fetus, it's just flesh, it's not a human being. What do I do with this pregnancy, this problem, they call it? Calls up to a Planned Parenthood as an individual wrestling with these things. Her name is Angela. This was just on the news October 31st, just a few days ago. The Planned Parenthood secretary or whoever, nurse, whatever, was there, said, Angela, you know that if you go through with this pregnancy, you will never be able to travel again. You'll never be able to be a missionary. Notice the twist. Notice the twist. She, she heard her talk about her faith. You're never going to be able to miss, be a missionary or do any of those things that you wanted to do. We can take care of this problem for you so that you can live your life and fulfill all of the dreams that God has given you. That's the message we're getting. You have dreams. You want to travel. You want to even do big things for God. You can't if you have this child. What about, what about family history? Had bad, a bad upbringing. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I'm hurt. And so on. What about, what about this one? This is a reason that's been given is that the child doesn't have a choice. Now imagine that. Do you hear what's being said? The child doesn't have a choice. I'm not going to have a child. I'm not going to have children because the child won't have a choice. Why is it that all of a sudden we're concerned about the child's choice preconception and yet once it's conceived and growing within the womb, and as an actual human being there within that womb, now it's all of a sudden the, mar- the mom's only choice, right? The, the, the choice is there. And the child has no choice after that, according to the things of the world. We feel this. We feel this. We have organizations, believe it or not, and I know this is going to sound totally off the wall it was for me I, I when I was looking it up on my phone it's like I had to put the phone down because it's it was so disgraceful and disgusting but do you realize there's an organization that was started back in the 1990s called the voluntary human extinction movement or how about this one the church of euthanasia the anti-human religion that's out there, everywhere. We're seeing this more and more. David Bonaters, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, he's an atheist. And he wrote a book as a playoff of words of Ecclesiastes, from Ecclesiastes. And the title of the book is this, Better Never to Have Been the Harm of Coming into Existence. 
He's, he's playing off the words in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, where in fact he, in an unwittingly sort of way, this David atheist individual, is actually right if you're coming from the perspective that God does not exist. And that life is simply, as Solomon shows us in the book of Ecclesiastes, that life is simply a pursuit of happiness and a hedonistic way of thinking. And at the end of a hedonistic way of thinking, of self-pursuit of, of all the pleasures I want, whether it's vineyards, farms, or women, whatever it may be, alcohol, you name it, throw it out there. When you come to the end of all of that, you're going to find yourself saying, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It is empty. Without God, it is empty. Well, when we look at these terms and all these different statements and reasons why individuals are not having children these days, how about we use some biblical terms? How about we just call it what it is? It's lovers of pleasure. That's what it is. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Lovers of money. Lovers of self. Covetous. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. It's idolatry. It's the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. My task was to give a biblical perspective on childhood. And obviously, as you're seeing... I'm seeking to show you from a world's perspective, they don't want children, generally speaking. And they don't want so because they're lovers of themselves. I wonder, as a parent, as I've mentioned, if some of those thoughts haven't crept into your mind as well. Whose voices are you listening to? There is a diabolical design to conform and to fashion us. And the question comes to us constantly, has God said? Has God said? How we view, view marriage, how we view parenting, how we view children has been and is and will continue to be shaped by the philosophies of the culture Unless we say no more. Stop. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. Paul is giving a command. Present active imperative. Something that's constantly to be done. And it's to be started right now. It's to be started in reality of something that's already been going on. Whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not, whether you and I admit it or not, Paul would say it to this time, to these individuals in that present age, good for every present age, stop being conformed to this world. It's happening. You're, you and I are not wise enough. You and I are not spiritual enough. We're not old enough. We're not smart enough. To avoid conformity to this world. John Piper said it this way. This isn't a direct quote. Forgive me, it's a paraphrase. But he said something to the degree that this, The older I get, the more suspicious I am of those freedoms that I 
of how free I think I am from the influences of the world. The older I get, the more suspicious I become of all of those ways that I think I'm so free from the conformity of the world. I'm actually a product of our culture, and so are you. What does the Bible say about children? We've already heard a lot, and I appreciate all that practical information. Let's just do a quick look. In the beginning, God. Remember I said, have a big vision of God? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God was there before time, space, and matter. God is the one who determines where we came from, how we got here, why we're here, and where we're going. In the beginning, God. Without God, there is no higher purpose. Without God, there is no meaning to life. And God said, let us make man in our image, male and female. And he commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. Contrary to what antinatalism, that's a term that's starting to get thrown around on the news these days, anti-child, anti-procreation, i.e. it's immoral to procreate, it's immoral to have a child according to the world. God said in the beginning, God said it, be fruitful, multiply. Male, female, none other, just two. One man, one woman, bearing children. Be fruitful. Now it could be argued how many, right? Everybody's going to go there. Well, you know, Psalm 78 and Psalm 127, 128, like arrows, blessed is that man whose quiver is full of them. You know, there was many years ago the quiverful movement. Remember that? Maybe you don't. I don't know. I remember that. I was a part of that. The more and so on. That's not the point to go into there at, that, at this point. The point is, when the world is saying, don't have children, God has commanded as the norm generally. Yes, there's singleness and so forth. We understand those things, some of those, those little nuances in life. And yet, as a general rule, God has directed one man, one woman, have children, bear children, be fruitful, multiply. How does God see children? God sees them, Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5, that children are a gift from Him. They're a gift. If you have a child, you have a gift from God. Not a burden, not a problem. You have a gift. They are, they are fruit, They are an arrow. They are the way in which you can reach out, if you will, to the enemy, point them, direct them. We could go into that illustration at length. They are are aspects that bring great blessing. Blessed is that man. Blessed is that home with those children. Psalm 128, children are counted as olive plants. Olive plants, the olive tree. Do you realize it is the national tree of Israel? to this day. Why? Because the, for, the, for the nation of Israel, historically, the olive plant has been a very special tree, a tree from which they get food, a tree from which they got oil, a tree from which they, they got made medicines and so forth. 
They would take the older trees, trim the, the limbs, would heat their homes. They would have oil for their lamps. I mean, that metaphor alone could just be unpacked and cause every parent to rise up and say, Yes, praise the Lord for my little olive plants. And in fact, at my oldest daughter's wedding, we purchased an olive plant from Israel and gave it to her as a wedding gift. You're an olive plant. And when that one older olive plant begins to die, it sets up another shoot and it carries on. They trim the older off and the new one carries on. The age of olive plants in Israel is amazing how old they are. We could see that. We could see, as I've already mentioned, Psalm 78, that children are God's design and way of showing all of human history the glory of himself and the purposes of redemption. Matthew 28, we could, arguably, we could look at that. Matthew 28 and 18 through 20, the Great Commission. Go make disciples. Guess what? If you have a child, you've got a blessed privilege and opportunity right in front of you. Make a disciple. Teach them the things of God. It's right there. Start there in your own home. Start with an understanding of your sin. You and I need to understand that. Then move to God's glory and how He has entered into through Christ to redeem you from sin. And, and His sovereignty. Don't let the, the mysteries of the sovereignty of God derail you. Rather, enjoy those because if God is not sovereign, where are we headed? Who's going who, to stop this careening ball that's going through the universe? God's got a plan. Get a big vision of God. Present yourself as a living sacrifice before Him. Do not be conformed to this world. And then follow what God says about children, not what the world says. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, I thank you and I praise you for...